Welcome to the last episode of the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. That means you'll never hear me say that again. I'm Tyler Green. This week, artists Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly. Work by the Kellys is featured in two ongoing museum exhibitions. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston is presenting the Kellys' The Rape of Europa, a commission that engages the Gardner Museum's 1559-1562 to Titian, Rape of Europa. That painting is on view now in Titian, Women, Myth, and Power. Nathaniel Silver, who curated the Gardner Museum's presentation of that exhibition, was a guest on episode number 514. We'll have a link to that show on the show page for this show on manpodcast.com. The Kellys' The Rape of Europa will be on view through January 2nd, 2022. Concurrently, in Philadelphia, the Fabric Workshop and Museum is showing Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly Blood Moon, which features two new Kelly filmworks and an immersive installation across two floors. That project remains on view through February 20th, 2022. On the second segment, Paul Farber returns to the program to discuss Monument Lab's National Monument Audit. But first, Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, after the break. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood Westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries and a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngen closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has reopened to the public with a new exhibition, In Relation to Power, Politically Engaged Works from the Collection. The exhibition focuses on ways that artists comment on and often vehemently resist the dynamics of inequitable systems of power. The show includes more than 80 works by 57 artists, including works on paper, paintings, sculpture, photography, and video. Many works are on view at the Nasher for the first time, through February 13th. Also, Off the Map, The Provenance of a Painting, is an intimate exhibition that provides a case study and provenance research of a single work in the Nasher Museum's collection, Portrait of an Artist, attributed to Joseph Wright of Derby. From England to Berlin, New York to Durham, the 18th century painting has journeyed far and seen numerous owners, auction houses, and exhibitions since its creation 250 years ago. On view through January 9th. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Tyler. At the beginning of your The Rape of Europa, which is now at the Gardner Museum in Boston, of course, you offer a kind of origin story for Homo erectus, for upright bipedal humans, as starting with a woman and her work. What is that story, briefly, for listeners who haven't seen the show in Boston? And why does your work, Rape of Europa, pretty much start there? So the original commission from the Gardner was to respond to their titian, The Rape of Europa, and that painting seems to us to be entirely about civilization and the human story and 
how groups of people come to live together and evolve a culture. And so that did kind of throw us back into human origins, not just civilizational origins. And so we started doing a lot of research and reading about the Neolithic and earlier humans. And I read about something uh, that the the feminist historian Elizabeth Whalen Barber in her in her book Woman's Work refers to as the string revolution. And she kind of contrasts it to periods such as like the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and says that, you know, the invention of string and the invention of of needles and thread was a momentous technological leap for humans that allowed them to kind of leave the temperate climates that humans evolved in and go to Siberia and go to much harsher climates. And so I felt that it was appropriate to kind of start off our Rape of Europa limerick cycle with this kind of nod to this important but ephemeral technology, you know, strings and needles. And I think there's also very good reason to believe that string and, and needles were actually invented by women. It's, it's certainly possible, if not entirely probable. So yeah, that was that was the origin. Mm-hmm. So then why pants? Why did you start with pants? <laughs> That's a good word. <laughs> well, because you need to walk, you need to to leave, you know, you, we had to leave Africa at some point and we had to walk on our bipedal legs and we needed pants to do it, Tyler. And it rhymes with pants. <laughs> <laughs> but it also struck me as a way of starting a, a major work with a drag joke. And of course, Mary's been in drag a lot in the work over 15 years. Is it fair to read what you're doing there in The Rape of Europa as a reference to the history you just detailed, but also is kind of a sly wink at your own careers. I mean, not very sly because um, I don't know if I would give us credit for being that, having the ability to be that meta all the time. (laughs) And I think I've said this before, but I consider my female characters to be just as much of a product of drag as the male characters or the non-human characters. Drag is a construct rather than as a physical act, yes. Certainly. So, so yeah, I think that now I'm kind of circling back to your, to the meat of your point, which is that, that costume is so essential to storytelling and to establishing character. And, and of course we, we know that quite intimately and you can't do anything without a costume. So yeah, in this very first limerick, the women are in their nude suits and then yes, they invent needles and then they have pants so they're kind of it's not just evolving this critical techno- technology of the needle but this storytelling technology of costume and of course there's also the pun that in i guess really all of the work your mary's pubic hair is constructed of needle and thread so there are all these little recursive moments <laughs> you know in the past we've talked about how when when you two start a work you always think about whether to place it in the historical past or the mythological past. So for The Rape of Europa, as you've just described, you kind of had to do both. And I wonder how that conversation about the historical past and the mythological past went as you approached this commission. Well, I feel like it kind of starts with how the fact that it was 
the Gardner commissioning it, and we were thinking about the Gardner Museum itself as this sort of storehouse of history, among other things, and, and, a, and a mishmash of different histories, and wanting to at least to set it in at least a parody of that space itself, set up a kind of vague notion of where and when this was going to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, there isn't, a, I don't think there's a clear marking point of where, where and when Europa is as a character. And then the limerick sequences are really like a theatrical presentation of history rather than again in, in a specific time period. I mean, it could be current, right? It's... Well, I think with the limericks, the players are clearly acting out a historical period. So they're not, and, and this was kind of important because we needed that extra layer of fictional pretext is in that the women acting in the limericks are not actually women from Riedel or from Rosetta. They're actors pretending to be <laughs> women from from those places. Yeah, and I, and I feel like that, I mean, that notion of us wanting to make the basement community theater set as the larger set for those limericks kind of had its precedence in other things we've done, like the the gymnasium for Priapus, for example, is this sort of semi-contemporary theatrical set, and yet they are performing mythological mm-hmm. <laughs> characters in it. But I think this time we made it, like you said, you wanted, we wanted it very overtly fictional actor characters playing those historic characters. But with Europa, I feel like the tactic, even though she is contemporary, we still used a historic historical tactics to establish who she was because we felt like we wanted her to have a class identity because the original Europa certainly does. She's a princess. She's kidnapped. You know, Zeus didn't kidnap just a, a, a shepherdess. He kidnapped a princess. And I think Zeus, of course, did interfere with a lot of shepherdesses, but he didn't establish civilizations with them. And I thought that this was an important point that Europa's being a princess and kind of occupying the top of this hierarchical elite in the Phoenician kingdom of her father, that was critical to Zeus's, quote, project of, of establishing a civilization that he needed he needed the prestige, he needed the status, he needed the symbolic weight of, of the princess rather than the shepherdess. So when we established Europa, she's also from kind of our civilizational elite. She's a young professional woman. She has a lot of uh, entitlements. She has taste. She is dressed to work in an office. Her pubic hair is styled differently (laughs) from the women in the limericks who, for the most part, are more anonymous and not princesses and stuff. So to establish someone as a contemporary character, you just kind of have to look at contemporary costuming and manners and idioms in the same way that you might look at someone from the past. I should note for people who haven't seen the work yet that what you're both describing isn't just storyboarded backstory, that we can see it in in the work, in the video. So, for example, Europa has a corporate-style badge slash name tag 
on which we can clearly read her name is is R Europa. <laughs> the the R doing a lot of work there, right? Right. <laughs> R is the letter and R is O U R. Uh, in case I'm being obtuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mentioned a moment ago that you started with the Titian painting Rape of Europa, and this work is all about foregrounding women and their experience of their bodies, sex, etc., especially within the context of not just Titian's Rape of Europa, but I think really the other five paintings that are now on view upstairs at the at the gardener. And they're pictures in which women are acted upon or for throughout. It's kind of a perfect match of their address with your address and your longstanding interest in mythology and narrative. So so much so that as I was looking at the video in Boston, I was kind of amazed y'all hadn't hadn't done this one before. As you started engaging with the Gardner painting and, and the other relevant Titians, what jumped out to you most? I think well, for one, when when we were looking at it up, the, the Gardner's Titian up close, when we were in residence there, we both immediately had this sense of humor in it. Mm-hmm. The, this this kind of slapstick element to it that Crude. Had, had to have been there. I mean, she's, Europa is falling off the back basically of the bull and flailing and and it's it's awkward Mm -hmm. and as much as there is the discussion of the beauty of the painting it's i just feel like you can't not acknowledge this sort of slapstick humor in it which Mm -hmm. has this sense of not only just kind of visually formally looking funny it immediately raises this question of the audience and Titian making this for King Philip and an element of nudge and I don't know there, was it an inside joke mm-hmm. kind of thing because this was the last one he did for Philip and by then they they must have known or Titian must have known Philip's tastes a little bit better I, and I think that he would have felt totally comfortable with whatever Philip's boundaries mm-hmm. were and I think Titian must have got by then a feel of exactly how far he could push it, how much kind of humiliation and and disarray we could see Europa in. And Mm -hmm. I think he's also showing off as a painter of how much he can humiliate Europa with her thighs being kind of up in the air and raised almost like, you know, she's already on Zeus's bed and her thighs are kind of like wobbly, but still like monumentally beautiful and erotic he's showing he's showing off and he's he's humiliating us as a viewer too i think by making us kind of just respond with our our bodies to just the sheer kind of overpowering beautiful quality of the paintings but also that it's humiliating and violent so i mean i i really do put this at titian's feet as an artist and not just at the changing mores but yeah, the the idea, like the picture that Pat and I could both, that we kind of built of this very small clique of incredibly powerful male courtiers at Philip's court who would have been viewing the paintings probably in a sex-segregated way, as in maybe some women saw the paintings, but probably... Not by <laughs> If the if women did see the paintings, they probably would have 
been expected to kind of recoil or react in a shocked manner. They couldn't have sat around and like joked and laughed and ogled the paintings in the way that this group of male courtiers certainly would have at Philip's court. And so it was that image of men laughing at the Titians that made it clear to us that this was overwhelmingly a project of humor and that make the achievement of like making something funny of our own that people could laugh at. That was the achievement that we saw Titian doing that we wanted to most reenact. And indeed, when I saw your Rape of Europa in Boston, I enjoyed how much people were laughing all the time. One of the things I, that really jumped out to me about the Titians that are on, on, on view upstairs that I really got out of being in front of them in person is just how thoroughly vulgar they are. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so it sounds like you agree. As you approached the work y'all made, how did you think through that vulgarity and decide to address it in your work? I think that vulgarity is not, not the same as humor, but they often pull the same cart. And I think the object of humor and vulgarity is to establish an inside group and an outside group. And to fall back again on that image of the princes and ambassadors of Europe laughing together and having a drink, ogling Europa and Diana and everyone, all those Titians. And so... We were hoping to, with kind of the limericks, with the exaggerated nudity and pubic hair and kind of the crudity of the form of the limerick and also the very the familiarity of the form of the limerick, it's a very humble form, trying to establish and for our audience, which is a uh, gender mixed, racially mixed, hopefully Gosh. economically mixed, of course, you could kind of point to museums and say, oh, well, are, are these categories really as integrated as, as we all would hope? And probably not. But it's certainly a more heterogeneous group than that uh, clique of nobility at Philip Court. And so kind of trying to establish a more egalitarian idea of humor that's also still vulgar. And that I felt like it, it's good to point out that just because a lot of the jokes of the past have been at the expense of women and have involved humiliating women, that when women finally get to tell jokes too, it doesn't mean we're not like throwing every every technique, including vulgarity, out entirely. We're just going to reframe it ourselves. And because I think that one one reaction that we, we have observed is of people with these Titians is that they're so they're very they create a lot of anxiety I think in contemporary people because they because they see the humiliation of the women and they see the violence and they're like how do we appreciate these paintings and show that we don't condone this violence or this framing anymore and I think that the reaction goes too far in saying well we're just going to deal with our anxiety by being very solemn and very serious mm -hmm. about this subject matter and just kind of shake our heads at it. And then once we feel like we've done that, turn the subject to the achievement and painting that they are. And so I think we wanted to say, we, just because we live in a, in a more egalitarian 
society that claims to value female voices and other voices, it doesn't mean that we now expect these voices that we've just welcomed in the conversation to be totally serious, just because they've been the butt of the jokes in, pa- in the past. Before we bring in the works that are on view in Philadelphia at the Fabric Workshop, one last thing that's about your The Rape of Europa, but that kind of mostly isn't within the Titians. One of the two sites of the scenes we see in your video is a sort of recreation of, sort of not, of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum's you know, interior courtyard. And you use it as a space to engage with Italy and Rome and its intellectual and political history, and indeed how America has engaged with that political and intellectual history since the late 18th century. So in the in the in the interior courtyard piece, there are there's at least one and maybe a few others um, broken Roman columns. And, you know, historically in American art, that's a reference to the end of the Roman Republic or the end of the Roman Empire. And in your work, (laughs) it reads as a fallen phallus joke or a flaccid phallus joke. I feel like first and foremost, we were focused on making a, a parody of the Gardner Courtyard itself. But of course, the Gardner Courtyard is this, on, on one level anyways, this act of appropriation of Italian architecture. It's an appropriation and it also contains a lot of spolia, like a yeah, lot of exactly. real elements of Italian architecture, not just Roman, but Venetian. And I, I think from like all over Italy and from all different ages. Which I should add, you do within your work too, in this case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, right. And it was actually going to Rome that really made explicit, this is how spolio works. This is how the physical appropriation of works from different areas and uh, eras and their incorporation into new work. This is both a practical measure, people need building materials, and also kind of, yeah, a, a way of taking works from the past and incorporating them into your current civilizational narrative. So I'm kind of warming up to your to, to your Rome thing, because when we think of our ideas of civilizational collapse, a lot of those ideas are, are formed by Rome because of the very iconic images of these huge monuments kind of in disarray, half-preserved, really images of a fallen Rome kind of formed the basis for, I think, at least Western ideas of civilizational collapse. But also in our collapse mm-hmm. in, in the form that virtual set took, the Gardner courtyard set. I mean, we boarded things up with plywood and put graffiti on them and covered things with cloth and tent, tented over fallen objects. So there's this element of contemporary collapse within the parody collapse that we didn't really want to shy away from. In making the parody of the courtyard, I think we've said before that there's this, we're we're embedding in that the possibility of the the end of this place in the future, (laughs) you know, the collapse of this place in the future. But also there's a lot of, Pat kind of digitally wallpapered, a lot of graffiti that I made mm-hmm. onto, you know, the, the walls of, of his version of the post-apocalyptic gardener. And all of these 
graffiti that I made were from real things. They're from cave paintings. So I think that that was, that was part of it too. When I first saw Let Go in the video, I also thought of how Europa was holding on to the bull. And, and so that there's a further reference there. Your The Rape of Europa is, of course, an address of a hyper quintessential <laughs> male artist. Did addressing Titian, know, knowing you were pretty directly addressing a very or male artist like Titian, inform the two works, two video works in Philadelphia, Blood Moon and I'm Jackson Pollock? The thing that the Titians did that really kind of dominated this whole period where we made all these different works was Titian really put civilization as a concept on the table for us very mm -hmm. firmly. And seeing the tools that Titian used to make his statement on civilization, like using of myths, of symbols, of humor. And like, I would say that our Europa wasn't so much as a response to the Titian as trying to address the same question that Titian was. And so basically kind of following Titian's lead more than kind of trying to respond to him or take him down in any way. So yes, when we, when we turn to the films that are in Philadelphia, Blood Moon and I'm Jackson Pollock, this was already firmly on the table and we were really kind of feeling the subject mm -hmm. <laughs> having gone through Europa and so I, I guess I would say, in a way, Jackson Pollock is very much on the same lines as Europa. And Blood Moon is more of a, whereas Europa is a very widely flung net covering, you know, all these limericks referring to all these different cities. Blood Moon is really an interpersonal story. It's a love story, a love story gone wrong, and that still tries to kind of look at some of the larger level questions like Blood Moon, I think very much the, the idea of evil comes in, like good and evil comes in to the Blood Moon story for sure. In Blood Moon especially, there's also this question of puncturing the great male artist. And the, the female character in Blood Moon holds a palette knife through much of the work and the male, like I sort of don't want to give it away, but kind of hard not to, <laughs> you know, the scarecrow holds a machete, you know, there, there, there are, there are these throughout the work kind of poking at stereotypes around the great male artist and, and, and pointing to how they're constructs. And then of course, I'm Jackson Pollock, which is about more than just male painters, but of course has a male painter and its title seems to me to kind of take down the idea of the great central figure writ large. And it seems to me that those could definitely be informed by an experience of such a dominant, great figure like Titian. Well, the idea of Jackson Pollock, well, it actually came out of the very end of Blood Moon, where the female character who's, who's an artist whose name is Betty, she's cut herself up into bits in a soup pot uh, stirred by Lenny, the kind of demonic male character, but she's, she's kind of done it to herself. She's deluded. She's talking about how great she is, how great her act of sacrifice and service is to make herself into soup to feed everybody. That's kind of her delusion. 
I should also say that these Lenny and Betty and the character in Jackson Pollock are these kind of object human hybrids. There are these humans with pumpkin heads. And sometimes pumpkin or squash other parts of their body too. As, yes. As we yes. Yes. But so at, at the very end of Blood Moon, when Betty has cut herself into bits in the pot, she starts bragging and she says, I'm the goddamn Brad Pitt of all twits. She says, I'm the best Patsy Cline of all Patsies for crime. And she says, I'm the Darius Rucker of suckers. So she's basically, it's this kind of dramatic moment of dramatic irony where she thinks she's bragging, but she's also telling us that she's done this to herself and that she's a twit and a sucker and a patsy and for letting Lenny basically deceive her and uh, uh, destroy her. And so once I had kind of started writing these, I'm the so-and-so of so-and-so, I was like, maybe I can write a few more of these and I ended up writing 158 of them. <laughs> but I've always been really interested in the boast, kind of as a literary trope that exists in so many literary forms that have influenced me, particularly in ancient poetry, like, you know, the Iliad, and also in rap, when it, where it's really a, a fundamental part of the art form uh, is the boast. Sports, too. Muhammad Ali. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It, it's really, I think you can, you can just point to the Iliad and say, the boast and the origin story and the brag is totally fundamental to poetry and to art. And just, I'll, I'll say a little bit more <laughs> about the form is, so like, you might say, well, I'm, I'm the Michael Jordan of used car salesmen, or I'm the Picasso of my local real estate dealers, the champagne of beers. And like the idea of using this proper name as like the pinnacle, as like a pinnacle symbol. And it's really kind of a a metonym of sorts, I think, kind of. But but you made up your own name for it, right? Well, so I thought, (laughs) well, surely there must be because there's so many little piddly Uh, literary terms for like everything under the sun. I was like, there must be a name for this type of idiom, but there wasn't. So we decided to call them a supernymic. Rhyming supernymic. And and so these (laughs) these 158 idioms in I'm Jackson Pollock are rhyming supernymics. So I'm the Jackson Pollock of service to Moloch. I'm the Nat King Cole of selling your soul. I'm the Marilyn Minter of nuclear winter. I'm the Alex Soth of Endless Growth. And so, yeah, there's there's maybe 10 minutes worth of that. And and that really all is, you know, the entirety of, of the script. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty hilarious. I think I wrote down two of my favorites. I'm the Nina Simone of tapping your phone. <laughs> <laughs> and just for pure disjunctiveness, I'm the Titian of the Warren Commission. Yeah, they're they they're they're great. Fun. And I think they're even more fun to have heard after The Rape of Europa, um, because there's kind of a linguistic thread or history between them. Uh, you mentioned squash or pumpkins. I don't know. Are pumpkins squashed? What I don't know about pumpkins. Yes, they are. Okay, so <laughs> I feel less dumb in how they are the heads of or most of the heads of the characters in both Blood Moon and I'm Jackson Pollock and how they become other body parts or attached to other body parts too. Possibly the dumbest question I've ever asked, but why pumpkins? 
<laughs> well, a not so dumb question. I'm going to give an equally dumb answer, which is I don't even really remember. I can't remember well, why the pumpkins. However, I think that for one thing, like a pumpkin headed being is a common trope. Uh, there's scarecrows and other like Ichabod crane. Pumpkins are a very, very mm -hmm. enchanted vegetable. You know, mm -hmm. you've got Cinderella and well, the jack-o'-lantern and the jack-o'-lantern from Ireland. And I think they occupy this place because we see them and think, there I am. Like there's something about the size and the shape. And I think also kind of the beauty of the pumpkin, like the kind of warm tones of the orange and the yellow. I think we, we see the pumpkin and we think, there I am. That's me. So the pumpkin is, is also a metonym, which is like, you know, something standing in for something else. So the pumpkin is obviously a stand in for the human head and for, you know, kind of the essence of the human itself. And, you know, we've done, for example, like when we did the Minotaur, that's a similar play. You've got a a human figure what with the head of a bull and so then you have a monster obviously but with the with the pumpkin head it's kind of it's an object human hybrid and i think that the stakes are slightly different and or you know in in both of these pieces they're quite literally about violence and about being cut up in the case of Lenny and Betty and Blood Moon and i felt like we needed that pumpkin as kind of the the stand-in, the thing that kind of liberated us to talk about violence in the way that we wanted to. Of course, before we started, we started Europa before COVID and before the George Floyd uprisings. And so we were working on that when that all happened. And in a way, I feel quite grateful that in a way like the Titian and the theme of civilization under duress and how much influence humans could have on the civilization that they were incorporated into. I'm really glad that that was already kind of firmly established thematically for us when COVID happened and when the George Floyd uprising started. But when we turn to Blood Moon, I think violence and murder were explicitly on our minds and, and evil. Yeah. in a way that it wasn't in the Europa. And I, I think the pumpkins also just had this sort of kind of reaffirmed the setting of this sort of vaguely rural place this was happening in. I yeah. mean, we, this, we decided, so the, the pumpkins were something that we genuinely collaborated on with the fabric workshop. They went through many... <laughs> iterations of figuring out the best way to make these so that there would be something we could use as costuming. And when we received the first pumpkins back from them, we were so struck by them as objects. I mean, having someone make costume elements for us is not something we're familiar with at all. And so once we received them, it really led to the decisions in how we would shoot this piece, this shift for us to a very simple blank set without a background, at least initially, was really prompted by those objects because the pumpkins had this element of 
reaffirming this kind of barn like set with the hay yeah. bales and the the dress, the objects. There's a definite element of kind of the national pastoral. Another way you use pumpkins at Fabric Workshop is as sculpture in a, a sculpture that is kind of uh, Brancusi endless column like. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're laughing. Was that was that the the intended reference? Why did making pumpkins vertically serial work for you? I think we wanted to, honestly, I'm... Well, I think it Well, it partly evolved out of having made having made the pieces we made for Rangoop. Yeah, right. So the Rangoop installation with these kind of semi-figurative totemic objects mm-hmm. that had monitors on the top for the, where the faces would be, I, I do think these sort of evolved out of that, of making these somewhat clumsy (laughs) stacked together objects. But in this case, because the pumpkins had become this rich theme for us that we knew that that would be the focus or the the main material of these structures, but also that these, these monitors would be embedded in them as well. Yeah. I think that just like in blood moon, Betty is an artist, like you said, and, it's kind of her wish to turn her kind of inanimate pumpkin head lover Lenny into a talking, speaking lover that that kind of is what leads her to make her first initial act of violence. She chops into his his pumpkin head with her with her knife. That so in a way the sculptures at the fabric workshop are kind of Betty's work. <laughs> they are sculptures, but they're also kind of parody sculptures. And I think that it is kind of interesting to think of Brancusi and that type of balance and proportion and kind of defying physics that he and other really great sculptures can make manifest. And our pumpkin sculptures or Betty's pumpkin sculptures are kind of intended to look very, very precarious and yeah, um, held together with strapping metal. And, yeah. And in that way, I can't, I kind of think it's a little tied to Pat's dystopian gardener courtyard, kind of this very, very highly compromised art object. <laughs> Y'all have been making work mostly together for about 15 years now, maybe a little longer even. And there are a couple things I want to ask about that have been constants across your careers that have been consistent constants across your careers. And one of them is your use of black and white or more accurately, grisaille. Are the reasons you stick to that palette now the same reasons as you started making work in black and white or grisaille at the beginning? I don't think so. I mean, I feel like it's been mostly stable for quite a while, but initially I feel like we were genuinely more tied to a kind of topical black and white because mm-hmm. of the World War One work. Mm-hmm. This element of kind of consciously kind of mimicking cinema, mm-hmm. <laughs> early cinema of the time. Yeah, right? and, I, and I think rather than kind of, I, I feel like there's this deliberately constructed humility and humbleness to our materials. And so when I think about what we look at for inspiration a lot of the times it's 
prints and photographs rather than paintings, you know, which were which are much higher status. And it, and it might be, you know, a cart a cartoon in an ephemeral newspaper rather than a film, or it might be an earlier film which are so different from contemporary films that it's almost a different medium, you know. And so I think we're always on the lookout for artists having really great effects with humble means, because that's actually something we can, we can use and we can, you know, copy, essentially, copy their, their technique or how they went about it. So you've been doing Grisaille for so long, it's not even a conversation anymore. It's just become part fundamental to the practice. Well, I will say that it actually is on the table fairly frequently, and we have thought about it. So it's not like we're entrenched in it and this is our thing and that's why we're doing it. But so when the question comes up and and it genuinely gets put on the table, when then we do decide to go with a black and white, it feels like kind of just a a refreshed confirmation that this Mm -hmm. is the right thing for this project. But it really wouldn't surprise me at all if it got put on the table yet again, and Mm -hmm. we did decide Mm -hmm. to do something in color. We're not wedded to it. Do you remember when you began to add making sculpture and three-dimensional objects that you would exhibit in a gallery to your practice? And why did that become interesting to you? Well, it it came out of the making of props. Mm -hmm. And I think the first film that we really made a lot of props for was The Syphilis of Sisyphus in 2011. Yeah, we made quite a few things. And we realized that it was worth making props because then a prop could help you make a joke. Like, for example, in Sisyphus, there there was lots of puns on mushrooms and morels and morals. And in order to make the joke come across stronger, we made all these mushroom hats, like we made an actual moral mushroom hat. And, and so, yeah, you realize that with these physical objects, you have kind of more freedom to make the jokes a little more out there because the props will help people catch on to what you're doing. And so that, that was really what drove the making of objects. And then I think the first, one of the first objects that we made that we felt really worked as a sculpture was in Swinburne's Pasiphae, we made this table for the character of Daedalus, who, you know, of course, is an artist, an artisan, and this was kind of Daedalus's work table, and it had, you know, pencils and art tools. And and I, I think maybe one reason that we got really into it was that, of course, this was an artist table. This is very familiar. It was amusing to make like a little prop pencil. In a way, it looked very much like our own desks. And so we made this table that I that we think worked and we just literally didn't change it and I think <laughs> took it to an art fair and and it sold and so well I th- but I think we also at some point when we were making props shifted or didn't didn't completely shift but became aware of the pleasure in making of, mm-hmm. of props mm-hmm. like and and actually no longer thinking of them entirely as ephemeral objects purely for a, you know, two second shot, but actually as an object in itself that we had invested something into and knew that we would either be using it again or it now had this life of its own. Mm. So just that basic kind of step away from 
something being merely made for a brief appearance in front of the camera to actually having a life of its own. Mm-hmm. I mean that, and and we still, you know, we go back and forth. Some things are purely ephemeral and made for, you know, and don't see anything yeah. and send you any, any life after being shot. But that is now in our heads. And when we are making props as a possibility that this object could either be reused or repurposed or somehow take on a life of its own. One of the ways that your three-dimensional objects work in a gallery space is they point to and reinforce and wink at the surreality of the video work. You know, I, I don't know that this is happening in Philadelphia, but it sometimes has seemed in recent years that maybe you're getting a little closer to building full three-dimensional environments in gallery shows, which is kind of, I don't know if funny is the word, but a little bit funny because often what we're seeing and appears to be three-dimensional in the videos is a green screen and a digital construction. <laughs> so I don't know if that recursiveness is intentional, but I find that it works that way for me. Well, what that makes me think of is how when when we do make props or physical objects, whatever they are, to exist on screen, we are always thinking about how this real object will coexist with any virtual set, with any digital construction. And in the digital constructions, we are always, you know, when, I, when I'm modeling objects, I'm always thinking of there's this element of resistance to the digital tools, which have this propensity. Yeah, they have an ideology of perfection or and or kind of cinematic realism. And we're always sort of resisting that. So, for example, the background in The Thong of Dionysus, this very, again, a kind of contrived theatrical set, it's digital, and yet I made it look like chunks of plywood that have been sort of crudely cut out and they're slightly warped. And so when we're working on these physical objects, there's this element of trying to have the objects have an affinity to the intentional clunkiness of the virtual elements and then vice versa, the the virtual digital elements obeying a rule of what would this be made like physically in a less than skilled way (laughs) so that it can have an affinity to the the handmade elements that you see. And so that there's kind of a blurring there that goes on. I was just going to say, it sounds like another conceptual relationship to drag. Yeah, exactly. I think so. You know, that's very apropos. And I was going to say that just like drag is a painting project in part, our work is a painting project as well. And I really just love to paint on a dimensional substrate, whether it's my face or my body or a cast plaster pumpkin like they made for us at the workshop. And I think also this actually does go back to the black and white question because so the sculptures are partially painting projects, but they are still joke projects in in the way that they're comparing like to like in kind of a humorous way. So there might be a black line that's outlining a corner of a box. And then there might be like a drip of black paint running down that box. And they're both like a sharp edged vertical line, but they're made very differently. One is painted and one is 
dripped and or there might be a, a brush mark or there might be a puddle. And so there's all these, you know, differences of intentionality and mark making, of course. And and I think that having them having those subtle joking homonymic <laughs> visual mark making comparisons mm-hmm. happen in black and white, I think makes makes it easier to notice them and makes it easier for the audience to realize that yes, this this is this comparison is happening and I am noticing it. Black and white is supposed to connote seriousness to us and your black and white works are both exuberant and as serious as unseriousness gets. And so they work for me on that level too. Serious, but not solemn, right? Right, never solemn, and and they 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 always look like y'all had a whole lot of fun making them, both both in two dimensions on screen and in three dimensions in physical space. Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Now on view at the Getty Center, Holbein capturing character in the Renaissance is the first major presentation of Hans Holbein the Younger's work in the United States. Named a show to see this season by the New York Times, the exhibition features captivating portraits the German artists created for a wide range of patrons, including scholars, statesmen, and courtiers in the 16th century. Explore Renaissance culture and discover how Holbein's drawings and paintings eloquently evoke his subjects' personal identities. This exhibition is co-organized by the Morgan Library and Museum and is presented in English and Spanish. We invite you to make free advanced reservations at getty.edu today. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16th, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Monument Lab director Paul M. Farber joins me. We'll discuss the new Monument Lab National Monument Audit. Farber co-directed the audit with Lori Allen and Sue Mobley. On the show page at manpodcast.com, we will have a link to the project website. It's pretty fantastic. And a link to a free PDF of the audit. It's a strikingly good read. If you are a big enough nerd to listen to this podcast, you will love reading the audit. Paul Farber, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here again with you. Because conventional monuments are often viewed as one-offs, solitary symbols in a single location, it can be difficult to consider them as a set of linked symbols, linked sites, and stories that exist across jurisdictions. So when in a survey like this you consider monuments across a nation, what particularly stands out? Well, I think first, you know, just to say, you know, the goal of this audit 
which was produced by Monument Lab and in partnership with the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, was to get a sense of the overarching themes, to look at how across generations our monument landscape has come to its current status and condition. One of the biggest hurdles that we had, I think, is a, is a common misconception that there is some central government agency in charge of all of our monuments, or at least some list that would give us all the information that we would need. And that would include the names of monuments, the dates they were installed, you know, to whom and to what they're dedicated. And, you know, that's the, the opposite of the truth of what we encountered, which is that monuments, as we understand them, despite their centrality in our cultural consciousness and our cities and towns and, and physical ways, they're elusive. There isn't a common definition of monument. So for the purposes of our audit, which was meant to be overarching and also timely, we went to look at existing data sources from federal, state, local, tribal, and publicly assembled sources. And with our research team, build algorithms and a rigorous process to from those other data sets that were gathering historic properties that include conventional monuments, but aren't primarily or even exclusively listing them, to pull from there an understanding of the monument landscape. And, and once we're able to do that, of course, you know, our findings included things that we've heard anecdotally, if not systemically, from artists and activists over the years. But with this study set, the study set of nearly 50,000 conventional monuments pulled from the data sources we use from our audit, you actually are able to see some deeper understandings and the ways that monuments connect or disconnect from history and the politics of today. What were the trends or findings that stood out most to you? So our key findings were monuments have always changed. The monument landscape is overwhelmingly white and male. The most common features of American monuments reflect war and conquest. And the story of the United States as told by our current monuments misrepresents our history. I think when we started this work, we really wanted to be able to gather a study set and ask questions of it. You know, our values as Monument Lab, as a nonprofit public art and history studio have been centered around, you know, the approaches to monuments driven by artists, driven by communities, really thinking about monuments as not frozen in time, but alive. But also one of our values is asking questions. And so for us, what was really important was to be able to have a study set and query it as much as possible. And once we did that, what really stood out to us were the kinds of connections that can be made with data and also the gaps in data that have made reckoning with our monument landscape so difficult because we're talking about something that we're acutely feeling in present, but that has been building for generations, building in hyper-local ways and in national and transnational ones as well. I think one of the things that really, for me, really was eye-opening, and I know for our team felt similar things, is, is this last point, the idea that our monuments have misrepresented our history. You know, I think for a long time we've known that monuments tell a slice of the story of a place. But when, you know, we queried in our study set the 
nearly 6,000 mentions of the Civil War in monument records. So that could include the title of the monument, that it could include metadata, sometimes information um, in the plaque. Of those 6,000, 1% mentioned slavery. And that's just a mention of slavery. That's not necessarily telling us whether that account is full or true, or we're hearing the voices of formerly enslaved people and Black Civil War soldiers fighting for the Union and um, self-emancipating themselves. That's just a mention. You know, when we look at the look at the study set, we see that 15% of pioneer monuments, those that mention pioneer, even have a reference to Native American, Indigenous, or Indian. And that is not including pejorative terms. And that, of course, is not the full accounting of the story because we also know that over half of those monuments were dedicated after 1930, which is coinciding with a Hollywood pop culturalization of the so-called Wild West and the frontier, and after armed conflict and land dispossession of many indigenous communities. And you start to see that, you know, on one hand, we have, of course, places where monuments, conventional ones, where we have conventional monuments that are giving us a glimpse into history, but we also get a sense of the the distortions so that, of course, it can be profound when a single monument is added or taken away that responds to harm. You can see that that can be catalyzing for a community. But we also have to think about this large-scale storytelling that intersects with so many other spheres of our society in education and politics and other kind of resourcing. And you, you realize that the work is timely and generational to respond. One of Monuments Lab's findings, as you mentioned a moment ago, is that the monument landscape is overwhelmingly white. One of the things I thought of as I looked down your list of the top 50 individuals represented in the monument landscape is that the monument landscape surely contributed to the construction and expansion of whiteness in the United States, of who gets the full benefits of citizenship. I think the list shows new national groups being welcomed into full American citizenship by coming to be understood as white. So I'm thinking of uh, Christopher Columbus, who's number three on your list with a hundred and, this is where I put my glasses on, 149, is that a nine? <laughs> <laughs> monuments. St. Francis of Assisi, Pulaski, Thaddeus Kushkushko was kind of the, I don't know, founder is the right word, but the, 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 the guy who helped form key units during the American Revolution, Robert Burns, the poet. Did you, in doing this audit, think about how monuments such of these would have worked on the nation and still work on the nation? Or is, is that beyond the scope of this part of the project? I really appreciate your line of thinking here. And this was something that jumped out to us from the beginning. And, you know, something I just want to say about the top 50 list in in part why it exists in this audit. You know, this is to be clear, the audit is not a tally of everything that could be considered a monument in this country. It is indexing records that exist from 42 data sources run through a rigorous process from our research team. I want to give a big shout out to co-directors Sue Mobley and Lori Allen, our lead data artist, Brian Fu, and the team of researchers whose credits are in the audit and just really 
made it possible to do this work. When we were gathering our data sources, of course, we're asking questions today about race and gender. We were looking to understand what appeared like an overwhelming whiteness, maleness, straightness, kind of elite status of many of the monuments. And when we have gathered together in the study set, that's ostensibly what we found. But I think one thing to note is that in the past, the kinds of questions that may have been important to previous generations of people who are keeping monument records didn't always reflect these same lines of inquiry. For example, of the 42 data sources that we gathered, six of them only even considered race or gender. And that just means that there was a place where there's some accounting for those demographics. But even in those six data sources, when given the option, those previous researchers generally left that information and that metadata blank. To really think about this from both a past and present lens, it's difficult on one hand to attribute categories post-haste, but incredibly important to understand how power is constructed and how these figures have been put out across the landscape in repetition throughout the country. So what, what we ended up doing was cross-referencing as much data as we could, streamlining data sources, and also bringing in biographical sources in order to be able to make statements about the monument landscape, focusing on the top 50 so that we could, from our study, our account, hone in on a group of people to give us insights about that. Again, not just the one-offs, but the way that particular figures are repeated across the landscape. And when we did that, you know, it, it was profound to see. It was profound to see that of the top 50, 44 would be considered white men today. That of that 44, 50% were enslavers. And just to look at a list where there were four Confederate serving figures and three Black Americans, you know, you, you do get a sense of the story that, that activists and artists and educators have been drawing attention to for the last few years, if not for a generation or more. And, you know, on top of that, I think the point that you make is important that, you know, in our data, what groups that we would now think of as white, ethnic groups that have gained status with white privilege, do have a, a, a myriad number of ways that they've been described specifically from their context outside of the United States and sometimes within. Also in the framework of settler colonialism, which is deeply a part of the monument landscape as well. When you zoom out and look at the trends across this, you do get a sense that, you know, that we have major gaps in our monument landscape. You mentioned a couple stats there, so I'll, I'll interject two of my favorite stats. One is that nine of the top 50 monumented Americans were involved in the forced dispossession of Native Americans or in governmental failures to fulfill treated obligations to Native people. Real quick, the list is Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson Davis, Andrew Jackson, John Marshall, Daniel Boone, John Logan, and George Rogers Clark. And my other favorite stat, and this one's yours, this one I, I lifted right from, <laughs> from the audit, is that within your study set, this is going to sound like a joke, it's totally not, 
There are more recorded monuments depicting mermaids, 22, than there are monuments to U.S. Congresswomen, just two, one to Barbara Jordan of Texas and one monument celebrating Millicent Fenwick of New Jersey. The audit is a tool. The data is available online. You can, you know, not only search the study set, you can, you know, see through our documentation guide and our GitHub how we've done it. And we hope that other people build on it because we know that we have built on data from other sources, whether organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Smithsonian's Save Our Outdoor Sculpture, Renee Atter's work, the Pioneer Monuments database, and, and the full list is, of course, on our website. I think that what stood out to us about the two, two statistics that you pulled out, I mean, one is that the relationship between monuments and land is profound in our country. Putting down a monument to a history that is distorted is akin to putting a flag in land that you claim as your own through domineering tactics. And so I think it's really one of the things that jumped out to our team was the ways that when you start to look at the monument landscape through that framework of of settler colonialism, land displacement, armed conflict, you see the ways that we have been underserved by our monuments. History doesn't live inside of them, but they're held to often different standards than other forms of historical telling and that they can be powerful means, but they, they're communicating to us whether they're in the spotlight or fading into the background. Likewise, in our study, it was much easier to find in symbolic and allegorical women than it was historic ones. That, again, is something that we've seen in our own city in Philadelphia and other ones that we've worked in and visited. And, you know, surely as we looked in it, there are other monuments that may not have been in our study set dedicated to U.S. Congresswomen. And there were definitely mermaids that we missed. And based on our records, we missed more monuments. And I will tell you just anecdotally, I've been in three states in the last several weeks. In each of them, I've seen mermaid statues or streets. I think the other thing I just want to note about that, because we've you know, it's now, I think it's become a shorthand, which is really interesting from our, from our audit, because I think it registers. Once you, once you picture it and see it, you can't unsee it. It, it. it makes sense. But I also think there's something to be gained here. We've gotten a lot of questions about the statistic. And I, I think that there's a reason why. I mean, I, I actually sense that we've gotten more questions about mermaids than we have about systemic racism or land dispossession. And I think it, it, in a way, it just reminds us that it's been, not only has it been much easier for monuments to mermaids to exist than to those of historic civically empowered women, but also that that is a, a place to go and a landing place. And so we have to ask ourselves, what stories have been repeated across space and across time? And how do we then intervene beyond the simple keep it up or take it down or what do we do? Because there's so many multi-layered responses that are possible that, that we hope this, this audit can open up and, and continue. Speaking of mermaids, did you find a way to consider similarly or more broadly abstract monuments? Monuments that may include, <laughs> forgive me, actual people, <laughs> but not specific named people, or maybe just 
works of abstraction like the St. Louis Gateway Arch, which was part of a monument to westward expansionism? Yes, this was a question that we had because not all monuments are are figural. I think that's the kind of quickest shorthand, but truly across our country, there are many other monumental forms. One of the challenges that any audit of the monument landscape will have is how do you parse out, even in a single structure, the features? Like, for example, if you're looking at a fountain that has 12 statues, has a plaque, has something brass inlaid, maybe a marker, like, is that multiple sites or is that one? Do you treat it from the point of view of the person who's dedicated it, or do you treat it from the point of view of the people who are stewarding it? Sometimes there are multiple jurisdictions that might even govern over one civic site. So from, from what, we, what we did, though, was tried to gather from existing data both how local stewards and record keepers indicated their own sites, and also we ran our algorithm to be able to account for that. So for example, you can see this on our study set. There were over 12,000 of of the nearly 50,000 are considered statue, 9,000 considered sculpture, over 4,000 considered bust. Um, But we also have 490 bells, 337 obelisks, 305 arches. And there's a number of other categories here. And and I do want to say the largest category is uncategorized. So abstract monuments, um, symbolic structures do fit in here. And again, this is a study set. So this will not include every single thing that we may consider a monument or is not a monument, but it really was from the records that existed. There's more to say and, of course, explore about the most – for us, one of the interesting lines is that what about things that may have not been stewarded or dedicated or cared for as – official monuments, but are treated like them nonetheless in local communities. And that is something that we've tried to gesture to in a accompanying essay series on our website called The Changing Monument Landscape, where we've had essays from people like Mural Arts Philadelphia, LGBT Historic Sites New York, the George Floyd Street Art Database, and several others. That's, that's for us something that we're eager to see how other people will continue to map as well. You all define monument as, quote, a statement of power and presence in public, which is a definition that seems to me could also work for painted portraits or portrait sculpture in, you know, non-outdoors contexts, if you will. Did you consider whether artistic merit or artistic import was or might be important in terms of how a monument might be received or cared for? So, yeah, so our our definition for monument lab of a monument is a statement of power and presence in public. And that's a definition that we've come up with over the course of the last decade in conversation with tens of thousands of people in you know, projects around the country. And part of the reason that we came up with that, and this is something that the audit affirmed, is that there is no central definition of a monument. Sometimes when we say monument, of course, we're thinking about statues and sculptures installed on high with bronze and marble, but the word monument also tracks ecological landscapes and historic sites and the projections and poetry and sometimes protests, even the term unintentional monument. There are places where a closed school or factory may actually be serving a purpose beyond its original intent. And so that definition 
has allowed us to explore with our collaborators, with artists, with educators, the new emergent landscape of memory in our country. But for the purposes of this data project, which we needed to put a definition into a computer, into a data system, it doesn't cut it. And so what we did was, first of all, develop an algor- the, the multiple algorithms. And our team kind of, we, I saw a video of the algorithm. It's like a, a 40 plus second fast track. It's like you're reading it, you know, almost like text in, in the Matrix or a hacker movie. And you're seeing all of the different rules that go through. And so for the purposes of the audit, what we were looking for were statues or monoliths installed with the authority of a municipality or an institution. And I think just to be clear, you know, we recognize that on one hand, that's not how we broadly think of monuments, inclusive of portraiture, inclusive of architecture. But for the purposes of this study, We wanted to say something about those objects that we conventionally call monuments that, that, you know, have the aura of permanence. They are not permanent. They require maintenance money and mindsets to keep them up. But it was for the purpose of the study. And the hope is that others will follow suit. And, you know, even one of the our collaborators at MIT's Data Plus Feminism Lab, which wrote a really powerful essay for for that Changing Monument Landscape series, have been really interested in street names, for example. And so I, I, I think that you know our hope is that people will connect this with other adjacent projects so that you start to see how the memorial landscape doesn't just involve bronze, marble, stone, but is also in cahoots with other forms of recognition and esteem. I'm particularly interested in that one as I've argued in book form that to a significant significant extent, the preservation of Yosemite and the invention of the National Park happened as a, as a monument and indeed as a memorial to Thomas Starr King. As, as, as we wrap up, what is next for Monument Lab, either in terms of the next stage of its broad project or specifically for this data set? So we are we just launched the audit um, in partnership with Mellon and we want it to be utilized as a tool. We went through a, a series of data workshops, an educator's roundtable. There's an educator's guide on our website. And we're really interested in how people will use this data, build on it. And I have to say, every time we've had a public event, I'm hearing from folks who are working locally, sometimes even working on a state or federal level. And they're eager to be able to hop in. And I think there's a lot of work coalitionally that can happen when we start to think together in these ways. In a way, fascinating and meaningful thing that we've seen so far is that a state legislator in Pennsylvania, Representative Chris Rabb, just proposed legislation removing Columbus Day as a holiday and replacing it with Election Day. And in his proposed legislation, he cites the National Monument Audit. And for us, that's incredible impact. It is important when the monument, National Monument Audit can inform decisions about statues and plaques and historic properties. When we also connect it to systems of power and hopefully more systems of access, it really takes flight. And that's really our hope. And then finally, we're on the verge of launching the largest project that we've ever done, Regeneration. 
which is a national campaign and exhibition, which will be funding 10 local field office sites around the country in the spring and summer of 2022. We'll be announcing those teams next month, and we're really excited to to do so. And, And I'll say we did an open call to curate this over the summer, and we put out that open call right around the time we were finishing up our audit and thinking a lot about the monuments that we've inherited and also the monuments that are emerging now. And that open call received over 200 applications from every U.S. state, nearly every territory, from cross-border collectives, from tribal communities. You know, we're we're really thrilled and energized to have the next stage of Monument Lab's work be really working in tandem and in coalition in regions around the country so that we understand from and learn from local memory keepers. Where, where knowledge and wisdom sits with them and their, their communities while also building strategy, tactic, momentum across the country as well and beyond. I love it. I hope historians dig in to build from the data understandings of how America's history has been presented and indeed how the idea of the American nation has been formed. Paul Farber, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.